Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. That's right. That's me, Melissa Canchola, host of Truth Be Told Radio. And what I got for you is, this is called Christian Environmentalism by Lodi Vakman here on Truth Be Told Radio. Well, as we continue our journey through Genesis, looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we have come to Genesis chapter 2. We have gone from a poetic rendering of the creation account to a more prosaic rendering of the creation account. We've had the big picture and we've hovered and looked down at the big picture of creation. Now we get on the ground and we see and we hear and we, we smell what it is that God is doing in the nitty-gritty of creation. We've seen the what. Now we see the how and the why. The picture comes to us more clearly as we look through these passages in the second chapter of Genesis. Even the name that is used for God has changed as we get to the second chapter of Genesis. We are viewing the same picture from a different perspective. It's like when you go to an art museum and you go to a gallery and you can look at a painting straight on and see the picture from that perspective, but then you can move over to the side of the painting and look at it from a different perspective, and all of a sudden you see the different textures of the brush strokes, and the magnificence of that piece of art can capture your attention from a different perspective, and you see the intricacies of the piece of work itself. That's what we do here. Or if you're looking at a beautiful Persian rug, and you look at it from one perspective, and you look at it from the front. If you want to know if it's the real deal, you have to do but one thing. That is turn around to the back. And when you turn around to the back, you see the intricacy of the work. Look closely and see how close the threads are, and you understand the intricacy of the work. That's what we're doing as we go from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2. But as we arrive here in Genesis chapter 2, there are several issues that are raised. Now, we don't have time to deal with all of the issues that are raised, but we will deal with one issue in particular. As we look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 14, verses 4 through 14, I want you to see something that's often not spoken about in church. I want you to look at this from the perspective of environmentalism. What? Yeah. I want you to look at it from the perspective of environmentalism. And those of you who know me and know me well know that I am as far from a raving environmentalist as you could possibly get. The Green Party is not my friend. Amen? But there are issues raised here. Listen to this from John Jefferson Davis in his book, Evangelical Ethics. He says, during the last century, in the wake of the publication in 1859 of Darwin's Origin of Species, 
The opening chapters of Genesis have often been read by evangelical interpreters with issues such as creation and evolution and the age of the earth in mind. While these issues are important, debates about matters of the origins of things have led to a neglect of other crucial implications of the text, such as humanity's relationship to creation. I think Davis has a point. We need to get into the debate as to how old the earth is, as to how the earth came to be. We need to be in that debate. We need to go toe-to-toe, eye-to-eye, nose-to-nose in that debate. We need to yell it from the rooftops and not let anyone have an inch as it relates to the issues of the origins of the universe. However, we also cannot give ground on the issue of man's relationship to the universe. And much of what we have seen in this perversion of environmental issues has come because we have refused to go toe-to-toe and eye-to-eye and nose-to-nose on those issues as well. There are basically three approaches to environmentalism. I want to offer you a fourth, but I want us to look at these three approaches to environmentalism. There is one approach to environmentalism that I call the pragmatic approach to environmentalism. It's pure pragmatism, the scientific approach, if you will. It's about weights and measures. And so a pragmatic approach to evangelism would say we have this many natural resources. Right now the issue is all about fossil fuels, okay? So here's how much fossil fuel we have. Here's how much fossil fuel we're using. Therefore, you do the math, by this date, we're out of those. Might need something else. That's a sort of pragmatic approach to environmentalism, okay? But not only do you have pragmatic approaches to environmentalism, but you also have political approaches to environmentalism, political approaches to environmentalism. Now, the political approach to environmentalism is a little bit different than the pragmatic approach to environmentalism. And we're seeing that right now, by the way, the political approach to environmentalism. And so here's the political approach to environmentalism. The political approach says, for example, global warming is scientific fact. By the way, that's a lie. Global warming is not scientific fact. Global warming is up for debate. Okay? The causes, I should say. Temperatures rising and falling that's happened throughout the history of the Earth. Not only the Earth, but by the way, Mars is also experiencing a rise in temperatures that correlates nicely with the rise that the Earth sees. So for those who argue for an anthropogenic, that means beginning with man, man is the cause of global warming. So greenhouse gases, CO2, and all this sort of stuff. Well, if you begin there, man is the cause of global warming. You've got to explain to me how we made it increase on Mars. Amen? Last time I checked, we haven't been there to mess that up, all right? But the political approach to environmentalism says this. The political approach says, you know, here we have these scientists who have said X. And because they have said X, we have to enact policy in order to rescue the world. So we have things like the Kyoto Protocols. And these Kyoto protocols come into effect, and nations are forced, 
had their arms twist by the UN, twisted by the UN to reduce certain greenhouse gases by certain dates. Why? Because of debated science. And so political environmentalism then says, we are the party who sees this issue and we want to rescue the universe. They want the world to blow up. Political environmentalism. Don't, don't don't give me the facts. Give me information that I can use to demonize my opponent and get myself elected. Amen. That's political environmentalism, all right? But there is also pagan environmentalism. So we have pragmatic environmentalism, we have political environmentalism, and then we have pagan environmentalism. Pagan environmentalism sings a different song. Whereas political and pragmatic environmentalism look at this thing from a scientific perspective, here's the earth, here's our world, here's our rainforest, and our rainforest is disappearing this fast, and here's our water sources, and our water sources are being polluted. Okay, they look at, they look at data, they look at facts. Pagan environmentalism starts from a different place. Pagan environmentalism says the earth is divine, and we need to treat her as such. Pagan environmentalism says you, human being, should not think of yourself as the crowning glory of the creation of God. Oh, no, no, no. You are but one among many of the creatures who occupy this globe, and you are no better than any other creature, and that you're not as important as this living entity on which you are hurled through space. Nature is alive. And more than just alive, nature is divine. That approach to environmentalism takes us to an entirely different set of conclusions. And so we have pragmatic environmentalism. We have political environmentalism. We have pagan environmentalism. What about biblical environmentalism? Could there be such a thing? Could there be a biblical approach to the environment? Well, if you believe in the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture, there has to be. If we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work, as Paul says. Or, if you agree, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. If we believe that, then there is no issue that we will face for which the word will not equip us. If we believe that. If we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, and if we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, then we ought to be able to find in the Bible an answer to the question, how do we relate to nature? Because that's the question. And based on the biblical principles of how we relate to nature, we then can determine how we fall on these other issues. So let's look at these in turn, shall we? First of all, biblical environmentalism will recognize the creature-creator distinction. Look at chapter 2 and verse 4. And then 5. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created 
in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So we already see a distinction there, but look at verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work the ground. So we see here in these verses that there is a distinction between the creature and the creator. The earth is being created by God. The earth is not divine. The earth is not eternal. The earth is created by God. So that's where we start. There is a distinction between the creature and the creator. There is a distinction between the creation and the creator. There is a distinction between the earth and nature and the God of nature. If we are going to approach the environment, the environment from a biblical perspective, we have to start there. So pagan environmentalism is completely out of the question. We don't treat the earth as this divine entity or as this extension or expression of God, as some would have us to do. For example, this song will be familiar to those of you who love Walt Disney and Walt Disney films. This song comes to us from the film Pocahontas. You think you own whatever land you land on. The earth is just a dead thing you can claim. But I know every rock and tree and creature has a life, has a spirit, has a name. The rainstorm and the river are my brothers. The heron and the otter are my friend. And we are all connected to each other in a circle, in a hoop that never ends. How high will the sycamore grow? If you cut it down, you will never know. Do we know this song? This is pagan environmentalism on steroids in a children's film. This type of environmentalism says you need to treat the earth right because it is a spiritual being just like you are. See? And if these creatures are my brothers, we got issues because I like to eat them. <laughs> right? I, we, I got a problem, okay? I, I got a problem because, you know, I just, you know, Mr. Mr. Cow or Mr. Chicken, you know, you're my brother and we're connected in this hoop. Doesn't, doesn't work too well, right? You know? So biblical environmentalism, first and foremost, recognizes, acknowledges the creature-creator Distinction, the earth is not divine. The earth is not eternal. The earth is not God. The earth is not an extension of God. The earth is not a part of God. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Amen? There is a creature creation, creation distinction. Look with me, if you will, in Isaiah chapter 40. I want you to see this. Isaiah chapter 40. Let's look at 18 to 23 there. Isaiah chapter 40. And it reads, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him with? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. 
He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. That is our God whom we serve. That is the God in whom we trust and in whom we believe. He is distinct from his creation. God is enthroned on high. The earth is not divine. Do we need to have a biblical approach to the environment? Yes, we do. And first and foremost, a biblical approach to the environment starts by recognizing the distinction between the creature and the creator. Secondly, biblical environmentalism recognizes the symbiotic relationship between man and nature. Look back there in verse 5 again. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. God has not caused it to rain, and there was no man to work the ground. So for the earth to produce all that God intended for it to produce, two things had to happen. Number one, God had to supply the earth with what the earth needed. And number two, man had to tend and cultivate the earth in accordance with God's plan and design. So there's this symbiotic relationship between man and the earth. We were made from the earth. You break us down, we're made of the same stuff that the earth is made of. God didn't make us from foreign material. We were made from the dust. And when you look at what man is composed of, and you look at what the earth is composed of, and you look at what the other creatures are composed of, we're composed of the same stuff. You find the same elements in us. When we die, we return to the same stuff, these same elements. So there is this symbiotic relationship between us and the earth. We have to recognize that. And we do recognize this, don't we? If you are a hunter, or you're a fisherman in here, you recognize this. Somebody who's committed to hunting and fishing, it always amazes me, you know. Environmentalists are always, you know, all these bad hunters and these bad fishermen. No, no. If you are a true sportsman, you are a true outdoorsman, you are a true fisherman, you are a true hunter, what do you do when you catch something that's too small? Throw it back. Why? So he can grow and spawn and there can be more and we can hunt again tomorrow or fish again tomorrow. Amen? True hunters, you do what? You go get a license, you go get a tag. When you get your license and you tag, you know, what are you doing? You're making sure that you don't overhunt. We don't want to overhunt because I want to fill the freezer next year too. Amen? There is a symbiotic relationship, which means we have to be responsible. Imagine that. We have to be responsible. We have to help our children to understand things like, you know, sweetheart, when you turn on that faucet, it's good when you're finished with it to kind of turn it off. Why? Well, number one, because 
Daddy don't like paying water bills for you to water the sink. And number two, because we need to be stewards. Stewards. So when it rains and God waters the grass, I really try to work hard not to water it with him. Anybody ever done that before? Raining outside, your sprinklers are on? That's poor stewardship. It's poor stewardship. And I have done it a number of times. I didn't even realize it. You're sitting out there, it's raining. Oh, the rain is beautiful. All of a sudden you look down there, some of the rain is going. Oh, God's raining and I'm raining too. It's a symbiotic relationship between us and nature. God has provided everything that we need in nature. We need to be stewards of what it is that God has provided in nature. And we are. We grow crops better and more abundantly now than we ever have before. Why? Because we understand this symbiotic relationship between us and nature. We've had scientific advances unlike any ever seen before in the world as it relates to us and nature and taking advantage of what it is that God has provided for us. It's incredibly important. We do more with less than we've ever done before, and that is important. A biblical understanding of the environment will take into account this symbiotic relationship between man and the rest of nature. God makes it very clear. The earth needed a man to take care of it so that it would produce what God intended for it to produce, the way God intended for it to produce. We don't ignore this. We don't ignore this. Listen, we've said this often. You know, this phrase, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. On the one hand, there's a ditch over on the radical environmentalist side of the road because it deifies nature and it ends up in idolatry. But there's a ditch on the other side of the road, too. You can't tell me that you can be irresponsible with the way you use natural resources and at the same time say you love God and you're a steward of the creation that he's given us. Can't say amen. You ought to say ouch. We're wasteful people, sometimes unnecessarily so. Part of this. The third part of this, we also must recognize the sovereignty of God over creation. Look at me at the next few verses. First of all, we see the Lord hadn't caused it to rain. Look at verse 6. A mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And so God planted this garden. Here's what's interesting. God didn't put man there and say to Adam, hey, Adam, why don't you choose a really good place and organize it the way that you would like to have it organized? No. God put the garden there, and then God put the man in the garden. God made man responsible for the garden that God had created. So God created the earth, so he's sovereign over all creation. Then God created the put man. We also see in Acts chapter 17 that God has set up the boundaries for every people group. So God is the one who places us where he places us 
for us to exercise our stewardship. God is sovereign over creation. Amen? And because God is sovereign over creation, our approach to the environment has to be one that's dictated by God. Real simple. God made it. God determines what we get to do with it. God made it. God determines the proper and improper way to treat it or respond to it or react to it. God made it. He has all authority over it. By the way, we see here in this text, God not only has authority over the earth, but over man as well. God creates man and breathes into him the very breath of life. So God not only creates man, but he sustains man. God gives us life. Far be it from you or from me to take the life that God has given us, to take the place that God has put us, and for us to determine in and of ourselves how we will respond both to our life and to the life that's around us. No, God is sovereign over all things. Turn with me to the right and look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at the anti-deist passage here. Deism is the idea that, you know, God just sort of set things in motion and then divorced himself from them. He, he set up these rules and he set up these laws and then he just sort of removed himself from them. Read Colossians chapter 1, beginning verse 15. 15 through 20. 20. Talking about Christ here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and what? For him. All things were created through Christ. All things were created for Christ, which means he's sovereign over all things. I was created through Christ. I was created for Christ. The world that I inhabit was created through Christ, and the world that I inhabit is created for Christ. So as I interact with the world, I had better make sure that I am doing with the world what Christ intended for me to do with the world, because he's sovereign. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything he might be preeminent. He has sovereignty over all things. He has sovereignty over everything. So even as we approach this, let's look at this from a scientific perspective. You know, people want to make the argument that there's somehow this chasm between you know, science and religion or between science and Christianity. And we've talked about this before. It's Christianity and the biblical worldview that gave us the modern sciences. Okay? Anybody who tells you otherwise are lying. It's Christianity and the biblical worldview that gave us the modern sciences. But we start with God, not with science. Well, then it's not true science. According to whom? Who told you that? We start with God, not with science. Christ is preeminent over all things. So whatever I'm looking for scientifically, I am trying to find the supremacy of Christ in whatever I'm looking for. 
And so as I am going forward with these discoveries, what am I looking for? I'm looking for the supremacy of Christ. Well, okay, but sometimes you just want to find a cure for cancer. Why? Why? Because that's an expression of the healing work of Jesus Christ. That's why. He's preeminent over all things. Do I start with myself? Do I start with the earth? Or do I start with Christ? I start with Christ. Therefore, if I start with Christ, here's the difference. If I start with science and I say, my desire is to heal disease, then I will take a human embryo and I will ignore the fact that it's an image bearer of Almighty God waiting to be born, and I will destroy it for the sake of science. But if I start with Christ, I say, we need to get stem cells somewhere else. And by the way, we have. We have seen successful work with stem, stem cells from, from umbilical cords. We've seen successful work with adult stem cells. Little newsflash, we've had no success, no success with embryonic stem cells. People have been made better with other stem cells. Nobody's been made better with embryonic stem cells. Why are we still wanting embryonic stem cells? It's political. It's not scientific. We start with the sovereignty of God. We don't start with nature. We don't start with man. We start with the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over all creation. So whatever I do as God's creation and whatever I do with God's creation, I do it according to the dictates of the one who created them both. You see that? It's all about our starting point, people. It's all about our starting point. Fourthly, biblical environmentalism recognizes the beauty and grandeur of creation. Look at verse 9. I love this here in verse 9, and oftentimes we look right past it. Genesis 2, 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is, look at this, pleasant to the sight and good for food. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I like that. I like that. We need to recognize the beauty and the grandeur of creation. God didn't just create the world for purely functional and pragmatic reasons. He also created the world for beauty's sake. Here's what's interesting. Look at what's happened in art as we've moved as far as worldview is concerned. Art, from a biblical worldview, is about what? It is about man's ability to recreate what God has created in different forms and through different media. So when biblical worldview is dominant, art looks like what? Art looks like a Rembrandt. Art looks like the work of the masters. But all of a sudden when worldview changes, art is no longer about me as an individual trying to recreate in different media, whether that's with clay or whether that's with, you know, canvas and oils. It's not about me trying to recreate the beauty around me and mimic God and make me in his image. 
So as worldviews change, we then move to impressionism. It's not inherently evil. It's got a different goal. It's not about accurately representing what God created. Impressionism is about slight distortion. And then we move from the impressionistic art to abstract art. Now we're talking about a distortion of what God made. Then we move to the Jackson Pollocks of the world who just throw paint randomly on the canvas. It's a journey of worldview, people. And now as we look at it from an atheistic, secular, humanistic worldview, what do we say about art? Beauty is in the eye, which means you are sovereign. Did you catch that? What's beautiful? Whatever you like. Over here, what's beautiful? Whatever man creates in an effort to mimic what it is that God has done. God has made these beautiful things and these beautiful colors. That doesn't mean it just has to be complete realism. doesn't mean that we try to, you know, paint photographs. No, sometimes it is about the beauty of looking at some animal and seeing a color in a part of its wing that you've never seen before in your life, and you go to work with colors trying to put on your canvas that color that God created. doesn't necessarily have to be an exact picture of that bird, but you're trying to make a picture of that color that God created. You put stuff on your walls. That's what you're trying to do. So I'm not saying that only the purest realism is true art. It's not my point. But my point is, as we look at art history, we're not just looking at the history of art. We're looking at the development of worldview as well. Biblical view of the environment recognizes the beauty and the grandeur of creation. A biblical view of the environment will pull the car over every now and then and say, kids, get out. Why? It's the Rocky Mountains right there. We're just going to stand and look at them for a while. Amen. Kids, stop for a minute. What? Won't you go hug that tree? Wait a minute, Dad. I thought you weren't a tree hugger. No, 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 no. no. Hug the tree to love the tree. That's a redwood. I want you to go try to put your arms around a red redwood so that in your mind you can fathom how big that thing is. Just go stretch your arms out as wide as you can. Try to put your arms around that big old tree that God made. And now we're going to go a few miles up the road. We're going to drive through one of those. Wow. A biblical view of the environment recognizes and appreciates the beauty and the grandeur of God's creation. When's the last time you did that? Or is it all just functional? Can I tell you I don't like modern church buildings? I don't. Why? Because so many of them are just purely functional. I don't like going inside old Lutheran and old Presbyterian church buildings where there's stuff that's there to create awe. Now, can you go overboard with that? Absolutely you can. But look at God's instructions for the temple and tell me that that was just purely functional. It was not. 
there's room for beauty and grandeur. Again, not excess. And if that's all you got, again, all together now, there's a ditch on both sides of the road, all right? We can be on the ditch over here where we pay no attention to beauty and grandeur, or we can be in the ditch over here where that's all we're concerned with. And that becomes gaudy. <laughs> and we've seen that. Amen? Don't point fingers. All right. Fourthly, biblical environmentalism recognizes the temporal nature of the created order. It recognizes the temporal nature of the created order. Look at the last part of verse 8, and there's something real sneaky in there. If you're not careful, you don't recognize it. Or the last part of verse 9, rather. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't that interesting? Tree of life is in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing the fall of man, and it's foreshadowing death. A biblical view of the environment recognizes the fact that none of this stuff was made to last forever. Nothing was. You weren't made to last forever. I wasn't made to last forever. This table wasn't made to last forever. This, this gym floor wasn't made to last forever. Nothing was made to last forever. One day it's all going to burn. But there's something about me that goes beyond this earth suit that I wear. And that was made to last forever. So if I understand the temporal nature of creation, I always keep it in perspective. This is beautiful, but it wasn't made to last forever. This is incredible, but it too had to be redeemed. I love that in Romans chapter 8 where it talks about the whole creation groaning in anticipation of its redemption. Christ is the redeemer of man and of nature. Amen. When we recognize the temporal nature of the things around us, it puts these things into perspective. It changes the way we view them. And it changes what we consider of most importance and of most significant value. And we always put people above things when we understand it that way. Finally, Biblical environmentalism utilizes the resources, the natural resources of creation. Look at the next part of this, verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Ooh, gold! And the gold of that land is good. And Delium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So we know where this is. This is in the Middle East. But I want you to notice that there is there's gold there. There are precious metals there. A biblical view of the environment are going to recognize these as resources. And they're resources to be used. We're going to recognize that these things can be leveraged for us 
I want you to understand something here, because here's where we sometimes make a mistake. We look at this and we say, see, God created man, and God put man in the garden. Therefore, when we cut down trees and we make parking lots and we make tall buildings and all this sort of stuff, that is somehow a violation of what God intended for the earth. God put man in a garden with natural resources in order to create things. Newsflash. When this thing is all wrapped up, God doesn't put man in a garden for all eternity. He puts him in a city. Amen, lights. Garden living is not superior to urban living. When God wraps this thing up, heaven is urban, people. Do you hear me? Heaven is urban. It is not suburban. Heaven is urban. It's a giant mega city with gold and onyx and fine materials that are crafted to make something out of the natural resources. Are you seeing this? So do I enjoy the country? I most, insured, I most assuredly enjoy the country. I enjoy the trees. I enjoy nature. And I love big, tall, beautiful buildings. I do. And I love it when we make them bigger and taller. I do. I love it when we do that. Why? Because that is man doing what's in him to do. Create. God creates ex nihilo out of nothing. But man, as an image bearer of God, picks up all the stuff that God gave him and says, I'm going to make something out of what it is that you gave us. And so now you can go see grandma halfway across the world, and it doesn't take you six months to do it. I'm glad. You can get on a 777. In a little while, you're going to be able to get on a 787. Google the people. You can go from here to Florida in less than two hours. Why? Because since the creation of man, we've been picking up natural resources and using the minds that God gave us to turn those natural resources into something better, into something useful. And that's a good thing. So, so don't buy, you know, this, this sort of pious attitude that says, well, if you are really a godly person, what you love is being in touch with nature. No, I'm really a godly person. And I'm going to love the city that God's building for us to live in when it's all said and done. You, on the other hand, might have a problem if you don't like cities. A biblical approach to the environment looks around us and sees resources and tries to take those resources and make something better. But again, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. So here's what I really like. I really like it when we go into a place and you build a house. And what do you do when you go into a place and you build a house? You find some land and there's stuff on the land. It's like the Garden of Eden. 
and all of a sudden you have to sort of push back the weeds and everything that we have because of the fall, and you have to make a place for your dwelling. But when you're making a place for your dwelling, what do you do? You save as many trees as you can. Why? Because there's something in us that likes both, and that's okay. That's okay. Because in the New Jerusalem, there'll be rivers and there'll be streams and there'll be trees. I'm hoping there'll be fly fishing. I, I really do. I really do hope that in the New Jerusalem, you can go fly fishing somewhere. Amen? This is a biblical approach to the environment. And so what do we do with this? I'm glad you asked. You take all of the issues that we now face and you sift them through this biblical grid. And we say there's a distinction between the creature and the creator. So I know I'm not going down that road over there that tries to make, you know, the creation divine. There is a symbiotic relationship between man and nature. So I know that I have to be a steward of what God's given. So I can love to hunt, but I don't just kill everything because I want to go hunting next year too. And I want my neighbor to be able to hunt too. I want to, okay. There's a symbiotic relationship between us. We understand that God is sovereign over us and over creation. So whatever we're doing, it has to be done in accordance with the purpose for which God made us and the purpose for which God made his creation. We appreciate the beauty and the grandeur of the creation because it screams to us the glory of God and it's awe-inspiring. We recognize the temporal nature of us and of the world around us so that we always keep our minds on the eternal. And we appreciate the beauty and grandeur, but we don't worship it. And finally, we recognize and we utilize the natural resources that God has given us. And we take the raw materials that God has given us. And to the best of our ability, we imitate God and we create something else through these minds that he's given us. If we take those things all together, number one, we'll be on safe biblical ground. And number two, we will have a God-honoring approach to our stewardship of this world that God has created for his glory and our enjoyment. And I believe that would bring honor to Christ. Let's pray. It's worry. It's anxiety. We're talking... In the seventh episode of The Chosen, the show reimagined the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus as found in John 3. This is where it is written, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is such a well-known gospel verse that show creator Dallas Jenkins wanted to be accurate. There's a great weight of responsibility when it comes to shooting this scene almost more than any other scene to shoot. 
And so he really wanted to get it right. But if you compare the scene with John 3, 1 through 18, you'll see the two conversations are quite different. Even the setting has changed. Lines have been added and moved around so that when Jesus gets to the words of John 3, 16, they have an altogether different context. At one point, Nicodemus asks, is the kingdom of God really coming? And Jesus says, what does your heart tell you? What is this, Disney? At the end of the scene, Nicodemus bows before Jesus to confess he is the Christ. But Jesus says, what are you doing? You don't have to do that. Everyone has to do that. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When the Chosen was confronted about this, they said, did it happen? We don't know, but it's very on brand. What? When did Jesus ever tell anyone they don't have to bow? This response is a great slogan for their show. Did it happen? We don't know. Let's see them put that on a T-shirt. One of the shirts they sell has this line from their Jesus, get used to different. Ironic, since this is a different Christ than the Christ of the Bible. Accept no substitutes when we understand the text. Did Jesus really live? This is Ken Ham, enjoying our free Christmas programs at the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Have you ever heard the claim that Jesus never even existed but was just a made-up figure? Now, how would you respond? Well, you can start by pointing out that very few scholars hold to this idea. And this isn't just Christian scholars. Liberal and even secular scholars who don't think Jesus was God or did any miracles still know that he lived in history. Some of them even say that no sane person doubts that Jesus lived, and it's not even worth debating. As we'll see this week, the scriptures and the historical records support his historical existence, and even his resurrection. We can have confidence that we serve a real and risen Lord. Bring the whole family to our two free Christmas programs at the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum in Northern Kentucky. Plan your visit at AnswersRadio.com. I respect people that are atheists, people that are agnostics. You want to adhere to the tennis of flying spaghetti monster, and, you know, somebody can do that. Um, if somebody wants to be Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or part of the Baha'i faith, knock yourself out. At the same time, I would come along and say, well, there's still truth, right? If I would say that God is good, he's holy, he's perfect. If God judges us, he would judge us based upon his commandments. Because we broke God's law, and if God judges us, we would deserve to go to his prison, which is a place called hell. God knowing that we would break his law, he had a plan. He sent his son Jesus, who was born of a virgin, who lived a perfect life. He died a cruel death. He says, whoever places their trust in me is given a free gift, which is everlasting life. But the problem is people need to recognize and realize that they have sinned, that they have broken the commandments. And then three days after Jesus died, he rose again from the grave. And that's why I'm a Christian. I respect in our loss with truths about God. We didn't need to reinvent God. And again, in, in, our, in our great tragedies, what we're always tempted to do is begin with ourselves or begin with our tragedy and reinterpret God, which is exactly what the shack does. It starts with what's most true is my loss, is my sorrow. And if that's the, the core of all truth, then I can reinterpret God according to it. Where the opposite should be true, we should be beginning with here's who God is. Here's who God reveals himself to be. Now I'm going to interpret my experience or my circumstances in light of those truths. I have no right to, to change who God is. I only have the right to, to view my experiences in the light of his character. And uh, that's certainly what, what we did. And we just found such joy and such comfort in doing that. God 
God became more real to us, if you will. We, we love him more now on the other side of our tragedy than, than we did before. The Testimony of Scripture. This is Ken Ham, inviting you to tour Borderland, Israel at the time of Jesus at the Creation Museum. Yesterday we learned that few serious scholars think Jesus was just made up. The evidence is just too strong that he really lived. The New Testament was written by men who personally knew or encountered Jesus. And most of it was written just a few decades after Jesus' resurrection. Lots of people who were alive when Jesus healed the blind and rose from the dead were still alive when the Gospels were written. If Jesus never even lived and the disciples just made him up, somebody could have pointed out that no one remembered any such man. And yet, no one did. We can have full confidence that Jesus Christ really lived. There's so much to learn about God's Word and the Gospel when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and get information on our museum at AnswersRadio.com. It's worry, it's anxiety that robs us of our joy. It's hard to be joyful when you're afraid, when you're worried, when you're concerned. What are you worried about? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Whose teaching does that sound like? It almost seems as if Paul was an eyewitness to the Sermon on the Mount and to the teaching of Jesus when he said to his own disciples, be anxious for nothing. It's worry, it's anxiety that robs us of our joy, isn't it? And what is anxiety but fear? Fear is the enemy of joy. It's hard to be joyful when you're afraid, when you're worried, when you're concerned. But again, what's the solution to that? It's going back to our Father. It's going to Him in prayer. It's entering into fellowship with Him. It's staying close to the source of our joy so that our anxieties can be shed from our souls and the virtue and the strength of the fruit of the Spirit may come alive again within us. You've been listening to Ultimately with R.C. Sproul, a podcast from Ligonier Ministries. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe or leave a review in your favorite podcast app. For more information, visit ultimatelypodcast.com. Evidence from outside the Bible. This is Kent Ham, author and speaker on the Bible's authority and reliability. Sometimes you'll hear skeptics claim Jesus never even lived. But consider that the Jewish historian Josephus recorded the execution of James and added that he was the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ. Another historian, the Roman Tacitus, wrote about the burning of Rome 
And he said rumors began spreading that Nero started the blaze, so he blamed it on the Christians. And Tacitus explains they were named after Christ who was executed by Pontius Pilate. These are just two of the many non-Christian early sources that mention Jesus. To say Christians made him up is to ignore the Bible and history. Subscribe to enjoy free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit our website of AnswersRadio.com. Get further equipped by Ken at AnswersRadio.com. If things happen in this world outside the sovereignty of God, then that would simply mean that God is not sovereign. If God is not sovereign then God is not God. It's that simple. And if the God you believe in is not a sovereign God, then you really don't believe in God. You may have a theory of God. You may have theoretical theism, but bottom line, for all practical purposes, it's no different from atheism because you're believing in a God who is not sovereign. Now, what are the practical implications of a non-sovereign God? Think of it now from the perspective of those of you who are professing Christians. If there's one maverick molecule in the universe running loose outside of the control of God's sovereignty, then the practical implications for us as Christians is that we have no guarantee whatsoever that any future promise that God has made to his people will come to pass. The Bible says... Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? 1 John 2.25 says, And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, when we understand the text. John 3:16-18 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. To condemn means to sentence as guilty, and that's not what Jesus came to do. He came to seek and save the lost to destroy the work of the devil, to give his life as a ransom for many. When he comes again, it will be to judge the living and the dead. Whoever did not worship him as Lord will be consigned to hell, a sentence that is on them even now. See, Jesus did not need to come and condemn the world because we're already self-condemned. Whoever does not believe in the Son of God has condemned themselves. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Not that God puts his wrath on him, it remains on him. We are all by our nature deserving of wrath because we have wicked hearts dead set against God. But God who is rich in mercy sent his son Jesus who took the wrath of God on the cross. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whoever believes in him is not condemned by God or anyone, but is loved. They are forgiven their sins and have eternal life when we understand the text. We are going to look at undeniable evidence that Jesus didn't start the Catholic Church. Whenever we post a video of Catholics coming to Christ, you can be sure the comment section will be filled with angry Catholics, saying that Jesus started the Catholic Church and that I'm poisoning minds with lies. 
But of course, there are videos saying how wrong I am. Our friends over at Living Waters, Ray Comfort, and Gang are at it again, spreading lies about Catholicism, teaching things that aren't true. He's referring to a video titled, Catholics Come to Christ After Hearing This. Here's the trailer of the 33-minute documentary. My family's Catholic. Both Catholic. I come from a very Catholic family. Roman Catholic? Yes. I'm a Catholic. I'm part of the Christian religion, so I'm more Catholic. You've had a Catholic background? Yeah. Are you a Catholic? I am. I'm Catholic. Raising me and my sister Catholic? I am Catholic. Catholic, yeah, Catholic. Well, I'm a Catholic. Are you Roman Catholic? Yes, I am. So when are you going to repent and trust in Christ? Now. As soon as I can. As soon as I interviewed then. As soon as I can. So when are you going to repent and put your trust in Christ? As soon as possible today. As soon as possible. Today? If I can. When are you going to repent and put your faith in Christ? Now. You're going to think about what we talked about? Yeah. I appreciate you coming to my life at this moment. I wish that everybody could understand how important it is to be born again. And so we're forced to make another video so that people can actually know the truth. And we invited Ray Comfort and all his gang over there to debate us and to have a formal debate with us. And, of course, they said no. They said they didn't feel called to it, which, okay, I could get. Maybe that's not their ministry. And they turn off their comments. They don't allow feedback. And so they're just speaking to an echo chamber. We have over 2,800 videos on our main channel. And this was only the second time we turned off the comments. We did this because there were so many saying things like, Jesus started the Catholic Church, and that it was the only true church, and that it was founded by Peter, the first pope. We don't want to be responsible for people believing false doctrine, so we turn the comments off. The issue of contention is the way of salvation. How do we get to heaven? Listen to what they say. The only kind of salvific faith that is going to get you to heaven is one that lives itself out for Christ, remains faithful to him, and is obedient to him and his commandments, which, ironically, even Ray Comfort says. Ray Comfort sounds Catholic. He goes around not teaching people faith alone. He goes around teaching people that if you break the commandments, you're going to be lost. And we agree. We have to follow the commandments even after you're saved. Jesus said it. Paul said it. Everyone says it. That is just not true. I have never said that, and neither does the Bible. It says the opposite. The Ten Commandments can't save us. They weren't given for that purpose. We're saved by grace and grace alone, without works. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The Christian does good works not to obtain salvation, but as evidence of salvation. Not bribery, but gratitude. Understanding this is the difference between life and death. Jesus started the church 2,000 years ago. Go back. I would challenge any Protestant, any Catholic, I would challenge you to go back and read the earliest Christians. They unanimously believed and quote the scriptures far more than we do today. So let's go to the scriptures and see what they say. Jesus started the Christian church 2,000 years ago. And the way to become part of the Christian church, the universal church of believers, is to be born again. And this is where the contention comes in. What's even worse is they go around preaching the gospel and telling people how to be born again, and they have a false gospel, and they don't even know what it means to be born again. That's what I find ironic. They have a core of the gospel, that Jesus died and rose again for our sins, and he's the only way to heaven. We agree with that. But that's all they get right. They don't know how to be saved. They don't even know how to be born again. For 
2,000 years, Christians have believed that born again means baptism. Let's go to the scriptures and see if being born again means being baptized as an infant. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That's speaking of natural birth being born of the flesh when we're surrounded by water. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. We're born naturally into this world, but we must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. In writing to Christians, Scripture says, For you have been born again, that is, reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, and set apart for its purpose. Reborn from above, when we're made brand new on the inside. That's different from being sprinkled as an infant. There is not one verse in the Bible saying to baptize infants. Both the Ethiopian eunuch and the Apostle Paul were baptized after a conscious belief of the gospel. Paul and Silas told the Philippian jailer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. A baby doesn't have the ability to believe. Then scripture again affirms that there was a belief before water baptism. And immediately, he and all his family were baptized and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Scripture is very clear that this is believer's baptism and yet multitudes have been lied to by being told that they are saved because of the unbiblical practice of baptizing babies. I, uh, I believe in God. Are you Catholic? Yes, I'm Catholic. Are you Catholic? Yes. And you too? Yep. Have you been born again? Do you know what that means? I don't believe so. Do you ever pray? No, I don't. Uh, I usually just do the Hail Mary or Our Father. I got a question for you. Yeah. What about baptism? You're wearing a cross. What does that mean to you? I believe in God. You guys believe in God? Uh, yeah, I believe in God. Are you Catholic? Yes, I'm Catholic. Are you Catholic? And you too? Yep. Have you been born again? Do you know what that means? I don't believe so. And what about you, honey? Uh, never know. Probably, maybe, probably not. Well, uh, John chapter 3, Jesus said, unless you're born again, you're not going to enter heaven. Did you know that? No. He said three times in a row, marvel not that I say to you, you must be born again. Do you ever pray? No, I don't. Uh, I usually just do the Hail Mary or Our Father. So, Raphael, i got a question for you. Let's say there's a knife in my back and I'm dying and I say to you, Raphael, you're wearing a cross. How can I get to heaven? What should I do? What would you tell me? That's a good question. Um, That's the big question. Big question. In one of the Gospels, a man asked Jesus that same question. He said, good master, what should I do to inherit eternal life? That's the most important question you could ever ask. What would you tell me? I would tell you to give your life to Christ and ask for forgiveness. What will that do? Put you on the safer side. Put me on the safer side if there's a heaven? Yeah, if there's a heaven, you go to heaven. So you really don't know if heaven exists. You don't know what's going to happen after you die, and you're just saying what you've learned as a kid. Is that right? That is right. You mentioned before about living a good life. Yes. Is that what you believe? Yes, that's what I believe. Live a good life. Do good. That's all. And you're nodding to that? Yeah, I agree with that. Ever seen those things on the freeway, those speedometers, where it says you're going 60 miles an hour, 70, you've got to slow down. You know those big, those big speedometers? Yeah. Well, it's to show you how much you're transgressing the law. And they're saying, slow down, because you're going to be in big trouble. So I'm going to give you a moral speedometer. It's the Ten Commandments. 
we're going to see how fast you're moving morally. Let's start with the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Have you ever committed adultery? No. What about you? Not at all. And Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery already with her in your heart. Did you know that? I did not know that. You didn't know that? Nope. It's in the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 27 and 28. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Nah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. So you have. Yeah. So you were lying to me and broken the ninth commandment. When did you last look at pornography? When are you laughing at it? Amen. <laughs> Do you think God's happy with that or not? Uh, um, no, I, he's not happy with that. That's, you know what Jesus said about it? Don't commit adultery. If, if no, I, he I, said worse than that. He said this, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Did you know that? Not exactly. What about you? How many lies have you told in your life? I'm pretty sure I've said a lot. Have you ever stolen something, even if it's small? Not at all. Oh, I have. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Yeah. There is no way I can answer yeah. Do you love your mum? Would you ever use her name as a cuss word? Hit your son with a hammer, you want to say something filthy, would you use your mother's name? Yeah. But you did that with the name of the God that gave you a mother, the holy name of God. Do you realize how serious that is, Damien? Punishable by death in the Old Testament. So here's a summation. This is for you to judge yourself. You've told me you're lying, teasing, blasphemous, adulterous at heart, and you have to face God on Judgment Day. If he judges you by the Ten Commandments, you're going to be innocent or guilty. So lot to take in, actually. Innocent or guilty? What do you plead? I would be guilty. Would you go to heaven or hell? Hell. Yeah, the Bible says all liars will their part in the lake of fire. No thief, no blasphemer, no adulterer will inherit God's kingdom. So can you see you're in big trouble? Yep. What about you? Can you see you're in big trouble with God if you died today? Yes. Okay, here's a big question. What did God do for guilty sinners so we wouldn't have to go to hell? The purgatory, right? Or no. No. What's around your neck? Oh. God did something wonderful for humanity. Do you know what he did? He gave his life on the cross. You're right. So how can that help you 2,000 years later? You're under God's wrath. You're heading for hell. How can the death and resurrection of Jesus help you? Do you know? The Ten Commandments, that which was looked at, are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus came and paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. That's why he said, it is finished just before he died. He was saying, paid in full. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, a judge will let you go if someone else pays them. He says, someone's paid you fine. Even though you're guilty, you can leave. Well, God can take the death sentence off you. He can legally let you live forever because Jesus paid the fine and his life's blood rose from the dead, defeated death. And the Bible says, if you'll simply repent of your sins and trust alone in Jesus, God will grant you everlasting life as a free gift. At the moment, both of you are like a man who's on the edge of a plane 10,000 feet up. He knows he has to jump, and this is his plan. He's going to flap his arms and try and save himself. We say, you can't do that. Just trust the parachute. And so you can't save yourself on Judgment Day. Just transfer your trust from yourself to the Savior. And the second you do that, you've got a promise from the God who cannot lie. He'll remit your sins in an instant, clothe you in righteousness as if you'd never sinned, and grant you everlasting life as a free gift. Is this making sense? Yes. Is this making sense to you, Raphael? Yes. Guys, because I care about you, I've tried to put the fear of God in you today. I've tried to make you scared. Think, man, I'm in big trouble. Make you sweat a little, hoping you'll see that fear as your friend, not your enemy, because it'll drive you to God's mercy where you'll put your faith in Jesus, be born again, have your sins washed away in a second, not because you're good, 
but because God is good and kind and rich in mercy. So you can't earn everlasting life. It's a free gift of God. It comes by his amazing grace. Is this making sense? Yeah. Making sense to you? Yes. And you? Yep. You going to think about what we talked about? Of course. It's, like, it's simple to understand. It's something that will resonate deep. You must repent and put your faith in Jesus. When are you going to do that? Today. And what about you, Raphael? It is Sunday, so I definitely... Today. <laughs> I have a question for you. Yeah. What about baptism? Are you talking about Catholic baptism as a baby? The Bible speaks of believers' baptism. The scriptures say repent and be baptized. A baby can't repent. As an adult, you repent of your sins and you get baptized as evidence that you are laying your life down and trusting Jesus. That's the purpose of baptism. It's an outward sign of an inward change when you repent and trust Christ. Does that make sense? I don't want to talk you into this. You say, oh, today I'm going to get right with the Lord, but I want it to come from your own heart. Don't feel pressured by me. Feel pressured by common sense. This is your life we're talking about. And examine my motive. Why am I talking to you so earnestly? It's because I love you guys. I don't want you to go to hell. I want to see you in heaven. And so today you've got this huge choice. Continue to serve sin and the devil, or you serve the Lord and righteousness. And it all comes through being born again, where you're given a new heart with new desires upon your repentance and faith in Jesus. Make sense? Yes. So you still want to get right with God today? And what about you? Yes. Can I pray with you guys? Sure. Would you guys be embarrassed if I pray with you? Uh, no. Okay, is that okay with you? Yes. Yeah. So I, I pray for these three men. Thank you for their open heart, their honesty, and their desire to get right with you. I pray today they'll truly both repent, put their trust in the Savior, and this day they'll be born again and pass from death to life. In Jesus' name we pray. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in your faith. The Living Waters Podcast, the Evidence Study Bible, 200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith, and much more. The Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks, available at livingwaters.com. They produced a booklet called How a Catholic Can Be Sure of Heaven. Watch this young... Dying for a lie? This is Ken Ham, enjoying our beautiful Christmas programs here in Northern Kentucky. Some people claim Jesus never existed, but was just made up by the disciples. But consider that Jesus' disciples each suffered for their faith. Eleven of them were martyred for refusing to denounce Jesus as the risen Lord. The twelve suffered and was exiled for his testimony about Christ. Now, people will suffer and die for something they think is true, but is actually a lie. But no sane person would suffer and die for something they knew was a lie. If the disciples had invented Jesus and his resurrection, would they really have been willing to suffer and die for it? Their testimony is clear. Jesus really lived, died, and rose again. Enjoy our free Christmas Town and Christmas Time programs at the world's leading Christian-themed attractions. Plan your visit to Northern Kentucky at AnswersRadio.com. In the wake of Hurricane Harvey, which devastated Southeast Texas, and with Hurricane Irma bearing down on the state of Florida, Kurt Cameron came under fire when he said that hurricanes are sent by God. Weather is sent to cause us to respond to God in humility, awe, and repentance. So how about it? Is Cameron correct? 
Yes, and Cameron wasn't merely sharing his opinion. He taught from the Bible, reading from Job 37, which says, He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love. He causes it to happen. Psalm 107 says that God commanded and raised the stormy wind on the sea, and men's courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. This is but a glimpse of the power of God, who will destroy the wicked. But if you cry out to Jesus, who calms the waves in the sea, you will be saved when we understand the text. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth. The letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Twitter is now X, but of course you can still get to it by going to twitter.com, so check us out on there, like it said. And I am going to say that's all for now, and bye for now. Thanks for listening, and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.